Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. You may already be aware of the contributions members of the Mohawk tribe made to building New York City. Mohawk iron workers have built a legacy of hard work and excellence in the field. Mohawks and other tribal members are continuing that legacy, walking in the steel-toed shoes of their relatives and making their mark on bridges, buildings, pipelines, and other infrastructure projects around the country. We'll get the history of tribal iron workers and look at what their continuing influence is on the framework of contemporary construction. That's coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Megan Kamrick in for Antonia Gonzalez. Tribal leaders and others are absorbing the impact of the recently released report on boarding schools from the U.S. Department of Interior. An organization in South Dakota aims to honor students who died at boarding schools in that state with a memorial project. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger reports they also intend to push for more follow-through from those responsible. The new federal report shows South Dakota had 30 boarding schools, the fourth most in the country. Federal government policy forced assimilation for Native children, including language and culture eradication. Amy Sazu is Sichangu and Oglala Lakota. She's the executive director of the Remembering the Children Memorial Project. Sazu says there's more to come from the federal investigation. Very notably, it's, a, it's just like a first step tons of records that still need to be located, churches and offices and and city offices and state offices that need to be held accountable, Um, graves and children that need to be found and protected. So far, the investigation has identified at least 500 deaths at boarding schools across the country. It's found 33 marked burial sites, six unmarked burial sites, and 14 locations with both marked and unmarked burial sites. The Interior Department says it will not disclose specific locations of burial sites to protect against grave robbing, vandalism, and other disturbances. Local researchers previously determined at least 45 children died at the Rapid City Indian School, which is now the location of the Oyate Health Center. The memorial project will honor those children at a spot behind West Middle School in Rapid City. The group will break ground on the memorial later this year. For National Native News, I'm Lee Strupinger in Rapid City. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt says he is concerned that tribes in the state are working to set up safe havens for abortion clinics following a new law banning abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy. Stitt, who is Cherokee, told Fox News Sunday that tribes in Oklahoma are, quote, super liberal. They think that uh, you could be one one thousandth tribal member and and not have to follow the state law. And so that's something that we're watching. Uh, But I'll tell you this. Uh, Oklahomans will not take will not think very uh, well of that if if the tribal tribes try to shut up abortion clinics, abortion on demand in eastern Oklahoma. Nearly 40 percent of eastern Oklahoma is reservation land, according to a 2020 U.S. Supreme Court ruling, which makes those areas subject to tribal and federal laws. No Oklahoma tribes have announced any plans to establish abortion clinics on tribal land. Native Americans and Alaska Natives suffered the largest increase in firearm suicides from 2019 to 2020. Robin Vincent with the Mountain West News Bureau has more. Dr. Tim Simon co-wrote the new CDC report that showed this deep disparity. He says there are multiple factors at play, 
including poverty. Firearm homicide and suicide are associated with economic conditions and how racial and ethnic minority groups are more likely to live in communities with high surrounding poverty. The report found that 24% of the U.S. population lived in counties with high poverty rates in 2020. For American Indians and Alaska Natives, that percentage was nearly double. Simon says potential reasons for the increase in firearm suicides include a spike in gun sales and the many stressors people have faced during the COVID-19 pandemic. For National Native News, I'm Robin Vincent. If you or someone you know is thinking about suicide, there is help. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is at 800-273-8255. For National Native News, I'm Megan Kamrick. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department, providing complete convention and visitor planning services to Hispanic and Native American conventions. Information on convention and tourism services at ahcnm.org. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Many Native people had a helping hand with the construction of skyscrapers, bridges, and other steel structures that occupy city landscapes. In New York, for instance, Mohawks are credited with helping construct several famous structures. Frequently, they're recognized for their fearlessness with heights and hard work ethic. The ironworker profession is not an easy one by any means. It can be dangerous, physically grueling with long days, and sometimes unfavorable conditions. The profession for some people is a long-standing generational one. Today we'll talk with some native iron workers and get insight on what it's like to be an iron worker, why they got into the profession, and the skills it requires. Are you an iron worker? Are you a retired iron worker? Call in, join today's show as we explore the exciting, highly skilled world of native iron workers. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also one 800 99 Native. We've got a great group of active and retired Native iron workers on Native America calling today, and they are looking forward to sharing their knowledge. First up is Mike Swamp, who is joining us from Utica, New York. He is a business owner, a former iron worker, and former local 440 director. He is St. Regis Mohawk. Mike, really excited to have you on the show today. Good afternoon. Yep. Well, Mike, Mohawks, they are well known for being iron workers. What draws your people to the profession? Well, it goes back generations of pretty much every family on the reserve at one point or another had um, their parents, their uncles, their grandfathers working as iron worker, and we just kept up the tradition. Uh, when I got in in 1971, uh, my uncles were all iron workers. My father, 
my grandfather was a union laborer, so we've got a lot of union uh, behind us. Mike, is there a cultural connection between Mohawks and ironwork? When I started, basically a lot of the young fellows uh, my age, you know, 18, 19, 20, we were all doing ironwork. Uh, you know, we traveled different cities, uh, New York, uh, Newburgh, um, all the cities in New York City, or uh, New York State, rather, Pennsylvania, the Northeast was pretty much where uh, the guys would travel to. Okay. Now, Mike, I think ironworker, I'm assuming it's kind of a catch-all term for a lot of different types of jobs that work on large industrial construction projects. Are, are there a lot of different types of trades or jobs that we can classify as iron workers? What are those jobs specifically? Well, basically, let's start from the ground, uh, the reinforcing, the the rebar, you know, where footers and walls, and then you're building sets on that. That's all part of the iron working trade. Uh, the structural steel on top of it, uh, the precasts, um, uh, the ornamental, that's the... Uh, the windows, uh, doors, uh, things of that nature, all um, all belong to the ironworking trade. Now, are most of the ironworkers are they are they welders? Is that one of the main skills they acquire? No, they're uh, I would say probably ten ten percent maybe were uh, were welders. The rest of the guys were the journeymen that would uh, erect the steel, do the rebar. Uh, like I say, do the windows, uh, ornamental work. So 10% of, of the iron workers were, were welders, I would say. Skyscrapers, tall bridges, working high up off the ground. I think that's what people so often equate with iron work. Is, is all iron work done at high heights? Not all iron work is done at heights. A uh, lot of it is on the ground rigging. Uh, the, the structural steel is, is done uh, with all the heights. You could be up three, four, five hundred feet, uh, and then there's the buildings that are, are 80, 90 stories, too. So uh, it all varies. The bridge work varies. Uh, you may be 10 feet off the water, or you may be 500 feet off the water. So that all varies. That's really high up, 300, 400 feet. We're talking way up in the sky. Mike, what was your specialty on the job? I did, uh, when I first started off, I started off at rebars, and then I went into the ornamental portion of the trade, uh, and then a structural steel, uh, metal siding, metal roofing. Uh, when I... Went into the uh, to run my local in 1996. Uh, that's when I became the business manager for local 440 in Utica, New York, and I took that job for 15 years. And the story behind this: the international called me. They says um, uh, we have financial problems with your local, and you're the next guy in line that could take it. Do you want to go? Can you give me an answer? I said, Gigi, you can give me an hour or so. Let me think of it. And so just go for a year. Just go for a year. So I says, well, let me ask my wife. And her and I talked. And 
And the guy called me back. Well, yes or no? I said, yes. Just take it for a year. That one year turned into 15 years. <laughs> wow. So, so when you moved over to the local, then that was it then? No more work on the iron? You specifically had an office job from that point on? Pretty much. Pretty much. Um, I had uh, control of all the, uh, uh, the jobs in my territory. And it was all pretty much office work. Well, Mike, it sounds like you were really versatile when you were working there uh, as an iron worker, a lot of different roles, did a lot of different jobs in the construction of some of these big buildings. What were some of the most memorable construction projects that you worked on, either as an iron worker yourself or an administrative role there at uh, Local 440? The one that stands out in my mind is the ski jumps in Lake Placid, New York. 1989, or no, excuse me, I think it was 1979, the, the ski jumps in Lake Placid, the Olympic arena I worked on, and uh, the ski jumps were quite a deal there. We built everything on the ground, and then we set it with some big rigs. Uh, th that was a tough, tough job. But, you know, we go by there today, and it's, it's still standing, and they're using it. That's really exciting. I remember that, the 1980 Lake Placid Olympics. How tall were those, or are those ski jumps that you built? The, the tall one is a 90 meter, and the shorter one is a 70 meter. So they're 350 feet on the, on the high one. Wow, just amazing. Mike, how long does it take for someone to become a skilled iron worker? When you started, about how long did it take before you were really, really proficient at your job? I worked uh, in between my junior and senior year of high school, uh, kind of getting the feel of it, and uh, I enjoyed it. As soon as I graduated, my dad had a job for me as an iron worker. I was supposed to go to college, but I said I'll go the following year, which that never happened. Uh, you know, I was working steady. Uh, the money was good. I worked steady for about 12, 14 years straight. And in that time, I did the rebar. I did pretty much everything but weld. Uh, towards the end of the, uh, my work in, in the field, I was a uh, general former for a couple of different companies, um, erecting prisons throughout the state. New York City, I was at the Rikers Island Project for uh, uh, about a year, uh, and then the prison in upstate New York. Here, I uh, I was in charge of. Mike, when you got started, what was uh, typical pay like for an iron worker? When I started in 1969, I believe it was in between my junior and senior year, the union rate. I I tell the young young kids about it was five dollars and sixty five cents when I started. That was a union rate. Uh, gas was only what forty nine cents at the time, and uh, you know nowadays it's it's the rates all vary. Our local is around twenty three, twenty four dollars an hour now. <clears throat> Excuse me, but other local like New York City, their uh, their whole package I believe is probably a hundred and forty dollars per hour. That's what the benefits. That's really great money, $140 an hour for some of those big projects you described. And I would imagine in 1969, when we adjust for inflation, like you said, gas was 
a lot cheaper in those days, as was everything else. $5.65 an hour, that was that was good money, right? It was good money. I went back to school in uh, September, high school, to finish my junior, uh, senior year, and I had a lot of friends. <laughs> I had the money. I had money saved, and I had a lot of friends. <laughs> I'll bet you did, Mike. Um, younger people coming up in in the trade today, uh, do you recommend it for young Native people, iron work? I wouldn't personally. Uh, if a guy wants to get into that trade, it's uh, it, we we start off at a four year apprentice program, and that's where you learn all the aspects of iron work. So that, that's you know that that's what we encourage. I encourage all the young people that apply to be an iron workers go through our apprentice program. Apprentice program, four year program. Well, we are speaking with Mike Swamp as well as some other native iron workers on our show today. We're learning more about the history and the legacy of native iron workers. And as always, we'd like for you to join the conversation. 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. That is the number to call to ask a question, to give a shout out to a native iron worker, to have a comment. Please give us a call. I'm your host, Sean Spruce, and we're going to be back right after this short break. A new Congressional Committee report shows Native Americans face disproportionate barriers to higher education. Lower educational attainment means a lifetime cost when it comes to employment and earning potential. We'll hear about the problem and some possible solutions on the next Native America Calling. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strong Hearts Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by Strong Hearts Native Helpline. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about iron workers today, so please call in, ask a question, or leave a comment. 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Calgary, Alberta, in Canada is Jasmine Smith. She is an iron worker. She is Begunny. Welcome to Native America Calling, Jasmine. Hello, how's it going? Doing great. Thank you for coming on the show. Jasmine, what drew you to the ironworker profession? Um, well, I had a I had a couple members of my family, um, women actually, who who joined the ironworkers. I'd say about a couple years prior to me. So I was still in high school when they pursued it. So I think that they were big motivators for me to go into it. Um, but my brother and I, we both went into a pre-trades program for Indigenous people. And as they were going through the list of the trades that they offered, 
you know, once they landed on ironwork, they're like, okay, this this is an easy trade. This isn't for the faint of heart. Like, you need to be of a certain kind of standard to get into something like this. So my little brother and I just looked at each other and we're like, you want to check it out? So here we are. I mean, we're both pretty successful in it. I absolutely love it. Honestly, it's one of my greatest decisions I've ever made. And how long have you been doing it now? Um, I've been doing this since 2018, so I'm still fairly new, but I am. I did go to school and everything, and I got my Red Seal and my journeyman status, so I love it. Oh, congratulations, Jasmine. Are there a lot of Native women working in the profession alongside you? Um, actually, surprisingly, yes. So it's funny, at least for our local, I think we've got, of all the trades in, I think, Calgary, Alberta, at least, we've got the most women in our local which I think is absolutely amazing. Some of my best friends I've met from doing ironwork, and they are Indigenous women as well. Really strong. And what are some... Oh, wonderful. And what are some cool projects that you've worked on? Um, I've done countless bridges and buildings and stuff like that. Um, I've done a couple windmills. I think the windmills were some of my favorites because it was out of town, so the money was obviously better, but just the whole atmosphere of it, like you're literally just waking up and going to sleep and anything else in between is just ironwork. It's just, it's grueling. It does get grueling. It does get incredibly tiring, but just the the brotherhood that you make along the way and the people that you meet, it just makes it so much worth, so much better and worth it. But yeah, you like mentioned the windmills, bridges and other things. Okay. And you mentioned the windmills. Are we talking like wind turbines for wind power, wind energy? Yeah. Okay. We've got a lot of Cause I know some of those. Uh huh. And some of those are really tall too, right? I mean, 200 feet and up. Oh yeah, totally. They, they get crazy, crazy tall. So what I've built in terms of the windmills are the bases. So they actually go very, very deep underground and they're very, very wide. So those are primarily what I've worked on when it came to the windmills, which I still thought was absolutely incredible. Like sometimes I could, I'm only, I think I'm like five foot six, five foot seven with my boots on. And you, you know, you can stand and walk around underneath them. Like they get pretty tall. I've heard I've heard that when you work on them too, they sway a lot, right? You can feel them move. Yeah, yeah, it gets crazy. There was actually a bridge I was working on. We were building a pier, and I must have been about five hundred or fifty meters up. And yeah, you could feel like the whole thing kind of swaying back and forth. Is you're just like you can't be afraid of heights doing this. I was afraid of heights up until I got into this trade. So when you get to those incredible heights, like you just you feel like you're floating and you definitely feel fearless after that. I, I can, I, I'm just trying to, trying to picture this in my mind, being that high up and, and working on a project that just, it must be really, really just completely an awesome experience. Now you mentioned traveling about how far do you travel for your work? Um, I've traveled as far as like my neighboring provinces, Saskatchewan and British Columbia, I know that you can definitely travel a lot farther. I've met some people who came all the way from the East Coast, as well as America, who have come in to do certain jobs. Um, but it all depends on like the jobs that you're sent out to, who you talk to kind of thing. So with us, you'll go to the, I'm with my company. So I right, right now I'm primarily working in the city. But yeah, like you go to the hall, they send you out on a big project and you can meet people from all over. Some of my favorite people I've met all the way from like Britain and Bosnia, just really, really amazing people. Now you mentioned your brother. Do you have any other relatives that are iron workers? 
Yeah, I've got my my aunt and my cousin. They're both um, they're both female iron workers. My younger brother and my older sibling as well. They're they're an iron worker as well. I've got a lot of iron workers in my family, but I also do come from a big trades family. We've got like plumbers, electricians, a lot of other different trades. Now you mentioned the camaraderie that iron workers share. What are some other things you you like about the job? Honestly, I love how how tiring it makes you at the end of the day, if that makes sense. Because like prior to doing this, I was, you know, just working odd jobs. I was a cook for a very long time. And it's a different kind of team mentality. So with this job, like you all are in doing the same thing. It's just heavy, hard, grueling work. But once you get all together and, you know, you make those friendships and relationships and stuff, it just makes the days fly by. And honestly, like just how strong I've become in the past couple of years and just how like, how much more confident I myself like personally have become. I absolutely love it, honestly. Now, Jez, when you mentioned strength, are you talking about physical strength, uh, just mental strength or both? I definitely say both. <laughs> my first day there, my first day as an iron worker, I was very, very weak. I was also a little bit overweight. So, you know, I'm just thinking I, I can't, I can't do this. I don't know if I can, but over time, you know, you, you learn to get over those mental barriers that you set up for yourself. Um, you know, trades in itself is very hard and being a woman and just all of the stuff that I did have to deal with, it strengthens you mentally and your physical overall being is just so much better. You get so much stronger. I have never been this strong in my life. I'm honestly like, yeah, mental, physical, even spiritual sometimes, like you go through a lot, but ultimately if you just stick with on a good path and with some good people, you can really overcome anything doing this job. That's really wonderful to hear your story, Jasmine. You talked a little bit about your training program, and I'm interested to know, do you have to have a lot of tools? Was there a significant investment in equipment and tools to get started ironworking? Um, so my training program, the one that I went through here in Calgary, um, so they kind of help set you up with everything you need. They work um, hand in hand with our local with our union so once we go there into the hall for training they actually give us all of the gear that we need so anything past that you, some some companies will even give you an allowance for certain things um but yeah so it's not it doesn't cost too much and we don't have a lot of big heavy tools that we would need personally like individually you have your bolt bag your uh, wire reel pliers and just like little stuff like that so typically we don't have like big toolboxes we just have tool belts you want to keep it as light as possible, especially when you're doing stuff like climbing. Like I said, you can climb as high as 50 meters, and you know you don't want to be weighed down with unnecessary equipment. So I've actually learned to to pack my belt pretty light. But when it does come to that equipment and stuff, um, yeah, they they typically help you with that, help you um, obtain the tools that you need. Any other specialized tools uh, usually come from the company. All right. Well, Jasmine. I've got some more questions for you, but I do want to bring another guest into our conversation now. His name is Eugene Tarbell, and he's joining us from the St. Regis Mohawk Reservation. He's a retired iron worker. Eugene, welcome to the show. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. I'm just really enjoying this conversation and learning more about Native iron workers. Eugene, you became an iron worker in 1975. It's a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> <laughs> Did your generation enjoy the same safety precautions that protect iron workers today? Uh, some guys do, but 
a lot of the young guys really don't like the the, the amount of safety that there is today. Back in my day, that would have been ridiculous, you know, but I guess it's because of the insurance companies and stuff like that. Like when I started, there was no, like, harnesses and all that for tying off. And we just had a rope on our belt. And and the guys that I hung out with worked with, well, I used to connect iron and, and bolt up. And the guys that I ran with, they would call it a chicken line. So that's a group of people that I broke in with. Okay, Eugene, so you mentioned no harness, just a rope. So what happens in a situation like that or what what did happen in a situation like that when an iron worker lost their balance or something? Was there any safety mechanism to to protect them from falling? Back then, they started doing nets, putting nets under you. But that wasn't really a whole lot of that. And on the high rises, they used they started putting planks. I think every two floors, every two floors, they would have planks. But I used to like to work on them coal powerhouses. You know, a coal generating plant, and there was all kinds of machinery that went in there, and so there was no really set set pattern of steel and it was pretty hard to do nets and all that but it was pretty much you had to hang on by yourself when I started did you ever have any close calls yeah I almost got blown off the iron a few times but uh well you get around talking with people and uh so I figured, right, you know, the average person, the first thing they try to do is catch their balance. And so I says, well, if I ever have that opportunity, I'm just going to squat down and stick my hand out as far as I can and catch the iron. And that's what I did. It happened to me once or twice, but but I was mentally prepared. Well, speaking of that mental preparation and, and talking about you know, the risks that you face there on the iron. There was actually a quote in Smithsonian Magazine back in 2002, and a sixth-generation Mohawk iron worker named Kyle, uh, not sure how to pronounce the last name, Bivois, I think. He said, a lot of people think Mohawks aren't afraid of heights. He said, that's not true. We have just as much fear as the next guy. The difference is that we deal with that fear better. Eugene, what do you think of that quote? Is that accurate? I would say that is uh, pretty much true because cause I just didn't get up there and walk the iron. It, it it turned into a challenge and and to me it was like a game. You know, you know, it was a well, really, it was like a sport to me in in a way. You know, well, that's because well, well, that that was setting the iron. That's when I was setting the iron. That that was really exciting because. It's kind of like an eagle thing. You're the first one there, and you're the one that puts the building together. The, the iron workers on the ground, they used to call them hook-on men, and they would send the iron up to you. And they have to, and uh, they would send, like at the time, they would send us uh, 
seven to ten pieces at a time, which is illegal now. They would call that a Christmas tree. And uh, so you had to carry a lot of boats in, in order to in order to uh, set that amount of steel, and that was just. And they would then we would send the chokers back down. They would send another another seven to ten pieces. A Christmas tree. Jasmine, I want to ask you really quickly, listening to our other guests today, listening to Mike, listening to Eugene and telling these stories about working on the iron back in the early 1970s, minimal safety precautions. What does that make you feel? Um, honestly, it's it's kind of intimidating. And I, I see why like a lot of the older guys that I've worked with have this like really hard mentality. Because, yeah, like back then I can imagine just the things you had to put up with and the things you had to kind of do on the fly as you're trying to make sure you build the project and not, you know, fall. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's really cool, really intimidating. Um, me personally, I don't know if I would have been able to make it as far as I did if I, wasn't, if I had joined in that time. But ultimately, like, I respect the sacrifices that they made in order for us to get to the point that we are right now. And ultimately, I do respect what they had to go through and that mentality that they have, because I don't believe you would have survived otherwise. Certainly, certainly. We've got a caller, Cassie, listening online in Nashville, Tennessee. Cassie, thanks for calling in. You're on Native America Calling. Oh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I, I've been listening to your show, and I'm just fascinated with Jasmine and her, the work she's been doing. You know, I'm 76 years old. Uh, at her age, I would never have thought of doing that kind of work. So, Jasmine, um, how old were you when you started training, and when did they start allowing women to uh, do this ironwork uh this iron work. Cassie, thanks for calling in. Jasmine, feel free to respond. How old were you when you started? Perfect. Thank you. Sorry, I'm just trying to do some math now. <laughs> um, I think I was about 24 when I started. I was, yeah, 24, 25. Um, and I know that they've been letting, like, you know, they've been allowing uh, women iron workers for a couple of years now. My aunts who are in, like my aunt who's in her 40s, my, my cousin who's in her late 30s, um, they started when I was still in high school. So that was about 10 years ago. Um, so I know even probably before that, there's been women who have been doing this job for a very long time. Um, but yeah, when I started, I know that safety was definitely like a huge priority and they did have a lot more uh, women iron workers as well. Well, let's ask Eugene. Eugene, when you started back in the early 1970s, were there women working on the iron? Um, I, I think maybe uh, there was one woman from our reservation. She started iron working. I don't know, maybe, maybe around the same time I did. She worked out of Toronto, Canada. I don't know if she's still an iron worker today. No, she's probably retired, but she was a little older than me. But, uh, yeah, but that there, goes there way was, back. There was a few. Yeah, yeah, that goes way back. But there was, like, uh, like they were except, exceptionally aggressive women, though. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and, and they were strong women, too. Well, Eugene, you know, I, I got to tell you, I've got a little bit of a beef with you Mohawks. 
And, and I'm going to tell you why, because it's thanks to your brave men and women and this reputation for being fearless on skyscrapers. I think some people assume that that bravery for heights is a trait among all tribes. And I can tell you that as a Pueblo from New Mexico, I don't share that gift. And I've, I've worked a fair amount of construction jobs as a younger man. And I can't tell you how many times my coworkers just assumed I didn't have any issues climbing ladders or being perched on a steep roof. And they're like, ah, oh, you're native. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. We're not worried about you. And meanwhile, here I am shaking in my boots on some ladder and I'm only like 25 feet off the ground, but still that's high enough for me. So thanks a lot for that, Eugene. Yeah, okay. Anytime, you know. <laughs> well, I started out, I was I was scared too at first. Yeah. But it, yeah. But it, 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 it took, well, it took a different focus to balance on the beams. Different focus to balance on the beams. And we're going to learn more about what that focus is coming up after this next break. And if you've got a question or a comment, 1-800-99-NATIVE. That's the number. I'm your host, Sean Spruce, and we will be right back. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about native iron workers today. Are you a former iron worker with a story to tell? Still time to join the conversation. What interesting projects have you worked on? Please tell us more about them. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our next guest is joining us from Utica, New York, Robert Cole. He is the financial secretary for the local 440. Robert, welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you. Glad to be here. Robert, when did you become an iron worker? I started, um, like Eugene, I started in 79. And have you seen the, the field, the profession change a lot in those years since when you started? Oh, yeah. It's, um, when, like, like I said, like Eugene was mentioning, um, when I got in, we had, there was hardly any safety protocol in place and um you know we just went out there and did our jobs and towards uh the mid 80s then they they slowly started turning towards um the safety issues of being tied off and and um the harnesses coming out and you know the i guess osha was looking at our members uh the iron workers were losing too many men um because of fall and dangerous, um, the dangerous work we do. Now, Robert, I'm interested in learning a little bit more about the history and all over the East Coast, so many large cities, some of these iconic skylines, New York City, Boston, even Washington, D.C., Philadelphia. Uh, have Mohawks been heavily involved in all of those projects over the years? Oh yeah, all over, mostly the East Coast, and 
we have some that um, traveled out on the West Coast in um, Los Angeles, um, Las Vegas, Phoenix. Uh, I've been in Phoenix. I've been in Los Angeles, and I've been in San Francisco. So you've been all over, East Coast, West Coast. I, I'm I'm curious because... You know, when you think about opportunities for native iron workers as opposed to previous generations, and I think of some of these big cities that that have been built, but there, you know, a lot of these skylines we're talking about, many of those skyscrapers were built a long time ago. So for younger iron workers coming up today, like Jasmine on our show, do they have the same opportunities that iron workers did have in previous generations? Yeah, they do. And, uh, you know, in the cities, some buildings get old and they tear them down, just like in Las Vegas. They're, uh, the casinos, they get bought out. So they, um, you know, demo it and then they um, start again and start building them back up. And like uh, Jasmine mentioned, the uh, wind towers, actually, we're doing a project right now in my jurisdiction. We got 25, uh, 25 wind towers going up. And there's about 20 of them that's going a little over about 320 feet. Then there's five of them that are scheduled to go close to 600 feet. Fascinating. What about the oil and gas industry? A lot of work uh, on the pipelines for, for native iron workers? Um, yeah, in the remote areas right now um, on the East Coast, there's really too much of demand for that unless you work at a refinery. But, um, you know, one of the places I haven't been yet was Alaska, and I like to get up there. My older brother, which was an iron worker, is still is an iron worker. He's working in Tennessee, but he's been to Alaska several times and he's been working up there. Well, speaking of Alaska, we actually have a caller who is listening on KNBA in Anchorage, Dina. Dina, you're on the air. Thanks for calling in. Oh, yes. Hello. I just wanted to call and let you know my dad was Clinkit, and he built a lot of the skyscrapers in Seattle in the 60s. And the main he passed away quite some time ago, but the main thing I remember him telling me is they would compete to see who could slide the farthest out on the morning dew when they were way up high in their work boots. And they used to be able to let the elevator free fall. So that the new iron workers thought that perhaps they were cascading to their death. <laughs> but that's it. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Hold on a second here, Dina. So, okay, you, you said they would compete to see who could slide the farthest on the morning dew. So that means like just a wet beam, they would just slide across it like it was an ice rink or something and see how far they could go. Is that what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> and like roughly how many feet in the air were they, do you know? Well, the however tall the tallest building in Seattle in the '60s, however tall that is at this point, they were tall then. So I don't know exactly how tall it was, but it was pretty tall. <laughs> okay. Anyways, I just want to put that little thing out there. Have a great day. Thank you, Dina, so much. Robert, hearing these uh, crazy stories of sliding on beams, uh, does that sound familiar to stuff you experienced out in the iron yourself? Oh, yeah, um, definitely. Um, when we, I got into the business, you know, my my neighbors and my friends and cousins and best friends were all iron workers. And, you know, we always hit the road and traveled together. And then when you got on the job site, you always, you know, uh, more or less 
fool around a little just to play practice jokes on everybody, you know, just to pass the time away while working, you know, putting up the building. Well, Robert, are, are there such a thing as iron worker competitions where people can test their skills? Yes, there was. Um, actually, on our res, we had one at one time. Um, Mike Swamp was one of them that um, got it going for us. And we used to have an iron worker competition every year. But um, due to the pandemic, it, it sort of fell to the wayside and we're in the process of speaking with our tribal leaders to see if we can bring that back. But um, every year up in the UP in Michigan, we have an international ironworkers festival that they hold it every year. So. Really, really interesting. We've got another caller on the line, Harry from Gila River. Harry, you're on the air. Yeah, I'd just like to make a comment about the Mohawk uh, tribes that were out there during these um, times way back when. And I got a, I believe it's a magazine on life of when the Twin Towers had gone down. How, you know, how they felt sad and, uh, and you know, because all the blood and sweat and tears they put into all that work they did. And also for the Golden State Bridge that was also mentioned in that article. I had that because um, I kept it because uh, I'm an, I was an iron worker myself. And uh, we did build a Bangwan ballpark in downtown Phoenix, the America West Arena, cabling the garages there, a 13-story justice building, and Intel that's on uh, in Chandler, Arizona, the second phase. We did that joint venture with uh, J.D. Steele. And also from the 101 freeway from Red Mountain going north up to Frank Lloyd Wright Boulevard um, bridges. So, you know, looking at the bridges connecting there from Tampa area, the mile-long bridge, we shot cable through there. Steel cable underground 24-7 trying to get those jobs done. I know how stressed and strenuous it was, but you know what? Uh, it gave me that mentality of a strong mentality, and uh, you know it helped me emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, physically, in the areas of life that pertain to us as Native people. So I look at that as uh, you know, strengthening myself that way. Well, Harry, thank you so much for calling in with those comments and, and those ins. It sounds like you worked on some really, really exciting projects there in the Southwest and. Robert, earlier we heard Jasmine talk about her apprenticeship, her training. Um, Mike as well talked about a training program. So interested in learning more about schools and training programs for, for Native iron workers. How do they work and, and how can people access those programs? Well, well, to today's age with the, with the smartphones, computers, we have established a website with our own local 440. We got a website. And on there, we have, you know, um, a page that if anybody's interested, they can, they can fill out an application and, um, you know, we'll, we'll ask for their resume and fill out an application. Then we'll give them a call back and we talk to them. And, and before uh, we'll have to go through a, a interview process, uh, a selection process, we interview all the applicants, then, um, then we picked, uh, say, maybe this year I need five 
apprentices this year. So we'll go through the do the interview, then we'll pick the top five that um, we have to do according to the regulations with New York State. We are uh, in compliance with New York State, so we have to um, proceed under their guidelines on how to um, um, choose a apprentice that is capable of uh, the apprenticeship. Now, Robert, I know that the trades are, are are tough to work in, a lot of challenges, and you hear about shortages in the building trades. And I don't know if it's like a generational thing, but are you seeing less interest among younger people for iron work than in the past? Um, I would say yes right now. Actually, I go to attend building trade meetings with all the other trades, and that's a common thing right now with all the other trades, too. It's, um, I don't know, you know, what are they thinking? Maybe they don't want to work outside. Maybe they want to be in the office. So. Robert, is all work, iron work unionized? No, there's, we uh, say in the 60s, 50s and 60s, we were, say, about 80%, 90% of the country was unionized. Then, um, there was a little downturn on that, and we have open shops that come into the the picture and start pushing that way. But you know, I attend, um, I go visit these um, open shops and go on job sites and see if I can recruit them because our leaders are telling us there's a big trend and it's a big building trend turning, and uh, they're pushing us to um, recruit, recruit because um, the of the like you said before, is the shortage, and we need to fill that gap so we don't have a shortage and we can build these big projects that are scheduled to come in the next couple of years. Now, Local 440, are most of your members native? Yes, I would say about 80% are native right now, and, uh, you know, we, we um, for the St. Ridges Mohawks, we're right there in Hogansburg, New York, and there's another reservation this um south of montreal quebec it's uh, another mohawk reservation and we have some members there come and they they'll um join with the 440 and uh, then we um you know uh, flourish from there so and what kind of programs and, and services does uh, local 440 offer to support these native iron workers well we also we have um, what we call journeyman upgrading. We always um, have training that is um, training our people, um, our journeymen, and uh, the latest stuff that comes out with international says, well, this is a new thing that needs to be trained, our rigging, our signaling, and um, our first uh, emergency first aid, CPR. So we push them out there and we uh, advertise and we get our journeymen back in and we train them. And uh, it's the, almost the same training as uh, as uh, the apprentices. And uh, so everybody is well trained and brought up to speed and with the OSHA new regulations and safety regulations like the harnesses. We had to um, teach the, the older gentlemen. The older iron workers, uh, you know, this is the new wave and this is what we need to start looking at, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I want to ask Eugene and, and bring him back into the conversation. Eugene, does it make you happy and proud to see that there are, are so many more protections and, and there's so much more oversight in terms of how iron workers, the working conditions that they work under there in the field? Does that make you happy to see that? Yeah, in a way it does, but uh, I think a little bit overboard. Like I worked on the last couple of structural jobs I was on, and they didn't even want you to walk the iron no more. uh, We would go down for coffee, and well, the 100% tie-off thing they had, uh, it took us like 20 minutes just to get to where our coffee was. And uh, mm. stuff like that. Well, they, well, really, it depends on who you are. But personally, I think it got overboard. Uh, and I think it's more the insurance companies that are pushing it than anything. Because I believe it's the lawsuits that once the iron workers start getting smart and started hiring lawyers when they fell, that's when all the safety started. <laughs> Well, Eugene, you mentioned that how I, I, obviously it takes more time with some of these precautions and some of these concerns to make sure that everything goes according to code or whatnot. And I, I always, when I look at buildings, even houses, tall buildings, I always wonder about the people that built them. And I, I don't, I mean, do you think buildings go up a lot faster now in those days or, or in those, in your time, did buildings go up faster maybe because of the fewer restrictions or do you think they go up faster now? What's the difference in terms of the time it takes to build a big skyscraper? Well, I never worked on a skyscraper, but it it, it definitely takes longer. Like, uh, for instance, I was telling you, uh, we used a Christmas tree, right? We used to get seven to 10 pieces. Nowadays, you can only do three. So whereas uh, you're setting iron, whereas seven to ten are going going from the ground or to wherever, from the ground to wherever you are, now it's three instead of seven to ten. So you gotta take into factor how how long does that iron take to get to the to the person? Okay, well. It leads a listener to question, is it about lawsuits or is it about an attempt to save people's lives? You never can tell sometimes with big corporations. We've reached the end of the hour. I do want to thank our guests, Mike Swamp, Jasmine Smith, Eugene Tarbell, and Robert Cole for enlightening us on the proud legacy of Native American iron workers. Join us tomorrow as we look into the barriers for Native students when it comes to higher education. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening.
Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one-of-a-kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes, healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. Healthcare.gov Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.